0: Good morning. It is a great day to be here, to be in the house of the Lord. I am thankful that you are here, thankful that you are with us this morning. Um, Go ahead and let you know, if you've not been with us, we are currently walking through the epistles of John. We are currently in the midst of 1 John chapter 2, which is where we will find ourselves again this morning, uh, starting in verse 12. But uh, before we get there, I want to start with something just a little bit different this morning. You see, I'm a student of history. I love to read history. I love to study history. And um, as I was preparing for this message, I came across um, so just some really interesting uh, stuff about history. You see, sometime between uh, the years of 309 to 408 or perhaps even 423 A.D., there was a famous Christian writer, a famous Christian preacher um, in northern Italy, and his name was Maximus of Turin. And when what history records... As his third sermon, Maximus writes, Beloved brethren, I think that it is sufficient reproof to you that on the previous Sunday when I was about to depart, I dispensed no spiritual gifts to you from the sacred scriptures, but upbraided and accused you because of sin, dismissing you without any consoling preaching. Now, these were clearly powerful words from a very powerful teacher, a very powerful writer. But what's interesting to note is we really have no idea what it was that he said in his second sermon because we don't have that sermon in written form. So we don't know what he said to the congregation at that time. All we know is that whatever it was, he scolded the people He confronted them because of their sin. He called them to repentance, and he did so in such a passionate way that he withheld the teaching of the word of God to them. Now, by his own words in his third sermon, he says to them that he gave them no consoling preaching, just words of rebuke and reproof from the word and from his own words. Now, you may be asking this morning, Pastor, why are you telling us this story? Well, if you have been with us the past two weeks, when it comes to what we have already read, this is exactly what John has done to this point in 1 John chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 2. You see, John has challenged his readers and the believers of his day about the complexities of how we know that we are in faith versus how we know when we are not. And so far, his text has been one of rebuke. He has called people out for either their sin that needs to be repented of or he has rebuked them for not living in a way that is in accordance with God's own word. So it's safe to say that at this point, John has been very direct and John has been very harsh up until this point in our letter. So in today's text, what we have before us can be best described as a a parenthetical statement or a parenthetical phrase or a parenthetical pause, if you will, here in verses 12 through 14. And he pauses here right before he jumps back into more sharpening that comes with verses 15 through 17. So John in this moment will now turn his attention to the authentic believers in order to encourage them, but then at the same time to remind them to not to love the ways of the world. So in our text this morning, what we have from John is John is clearly writing words that matter. And as we're going to see from our text today, these words also apply to us today. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. We will begin reading in verse 12, and once you have found your place there, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is John writing in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. John writes... And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the word or the uh, the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you for this day, and we thank you for this time and for the opportunity that we have now to just spend these next few moments in your word. Father, we thank you for the opportunities to pray your word. We thank you for the opportunity to sing your word, to hear your word spoken, And Father, we pray now in these next few moments as we sit and learn from your text, God, we pray that you and you alone would be glorified. So Father, prepare our hearts and our minds for your truth today. And God, we pray that you and you alone would be glorified. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for loving us. Thank you for desiring us. Thank you for delighting in us. And God, we pray that you would be glorified in this time. For it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, if I could to set the scene for you, John is now going to focus his attention on the true believer, on the authentic believer. And he's going to use this particular passage both to encourage the believer, but also to begin challenging them to separate themselves from worldly love and also worldly living. And so John teaches us that if we love Christ and we desire to follow Christ, then we must not fall in love with the things of the world. Rather, our love and our devotion should be first and foremost be given to God the Father who has given us all that we need and all that we could ever desire. And so as we look again in our text in verses 12 through 14, John opens this passage by giving us six I am writing or I write statements that are beautifully structured, they're rhythmic, and they're also Poetic. Now, as we can see in verses 12 through 14, John addresses a very specific audience when he calls them children, fathers, and young men. Now, with each of these groups, he gives them two statements of encouragement that they are now to remember. Now, if you're reading this passage, you may be wondering why would John reference the believers in this way? You see, as we've already talked about back in First John chapter 1, John loved the local church. John loved the body of believers. John loved the people that he was able to shepherd. And so John has in mind all believers at this particular point. You see, he was sharing this passage, sharing this text specifically for the new believer, for the mature believer who is a leader within the church, and then also the young believer or the young leader who is in the throes of spiritual work and also spiritual warfare. So let's look at each of these groups in more detail to see what it is that John is teaching to them. Our first group, John says, I am writing to you, children. We see them mentioned in verses 12 and 13. Now, John begins with the group that can best be defined as new believers, those who have recently found faith in Jesus Christ. And he first says to them, your sins are forgiven. Now in this passage, John reminds the believers that their sins are forgiven not because of anything that they have done, not because of their appearance or their preference or their style or their motivation, but rather their sins are forgiven because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Jesus is the one who cleanses us from our sin, and it is Jesus, as we talked about last week, who has now become the advocate and atonement for our sin. Now, John's going to take this message one step further by not only reminding them that their sins are forgiven, but he then tells them that they now know the Father. Now, we may look at this as believers today and say that this is already a known fact, but don't miss the beauty that is found within the simplicity of this statement. You see, knowing God the Father is no small claim. Knowing God the Father is not some sort of consolation prize to our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. You see, because of what Jesus Christ has done, we now know the Father and he knows us. And therefore, the game ends here. There is no need for a consolation prize. There is no need to now see what is behind curtain number two. You see, when we think, about God the father do we understand that it's God the father who provides and it's God the father who protects do we understand that it's God the father who nurtures and it's God the father who nourishes you see God the father will never stop loving us because he will not abandon his adopted now I love what J.I. Packer says about this point He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, his prayers, and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. So at this point, we have to ask ourselves, how well, do we know God the Father? When was the last time we came together for the purpose of praising God for the fact that we went from being an enemy of God to now we are adopted into the family of God? How often do we reflect on the fact that God has given us all that we need and He alone is the reason why we gather for worship? We move from there and we see our second group that John mentions. John goes from talking about children and reminding them of God the Father to now saying, I am writing to you fathers. He does this in verses 13 and 14. Now these fathers are not just men who have children, but rather these are the mature children people in the church these are the ones who have walked with God for years these are the ones who keep God's teachings and keep the words of God and have done so for years these are the ones who now are leaders in the local church and notice that John says to them twice because you know him who is from the beginning Now again, yes, John says this twice. Yes, these statements are identical. However, don't miss the truth that John is teaching us this morning. You see, here is a reference that Jesus Christ is the incarnate logos or the incarnate word of God. You see, John is reminding the leaders that it was Jesus who has been around from the beginning and thus Jesus has always existed. Now, John is acknowledging the beauty that exists in knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and knowing that He was from the beginning. Now, like we said last week, the more we know, the more we love. The more we love, the more we desire to know. And so what John is doing here is he's actually affirming the growth of the leaders in the church. It's almost like John is saying, we now know in an abiding and a permanent relationship, the one who has existed before all of creation. And he is the same one that we see in the gospels. You see, John, by making this statement, is now affirming what he's already written in John 1.1 and again in 1 John 1.1, that Jesus Christ was there. He was always there, and he was there from the beginning. Now, it is the mature believer or the leader who should know this truth all too well. In fact, at this point in reminding these fathers that Jesus Christ was there from the beginning, John is reminding them that, hey, as believers in Christ, as mature believers in Christ, you need to be disciplined in your life in other words you need to be spending so much time with him and with the word that this truth of knowing that jesus was there from the beginning should be second nature for you and therefore you should be the one who continues to grow in discipleship and continues to seek and desire personal growth in your life now don't mishear john John is not saying in this moment that it's only the fathers who now know Christ. You see, the children knew as well. However, for John, in speaking to the fathers, he is encouraging them with a truth that is not the first thing learned for the believer. Rather, it's a truth that we ultimately come to understand as we continue in our walk and as we continue to grow in our faith. And so we have to ask ourselves at this point, how are we doing and how are we growing in our faith? Do we truly rest in knowing that Jesus Christ has been around from the beginning? And since Jesus Christ has been around from the beginning, we know that Jesus will still be there in the end. Does his word assure us of that fact and as believers in Christ who recognize the love of God who recognize our desire to grow in Christ because of our love for Christ do we now desire to grow in our faith as well now John moves from there to our third group and John now says I am writing to you young men He says this in verses 13 through 14. Now these young men actually represent the group that is in the prime of their lives. These are the ones who are working hard, they are serving even harder, and they realize that they are in the midst of spiritual warfare. And so John gives them three phrases. He says, you have overcome the evil one, you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. Now I don't know if you've, read this passage much, but I've gone back and read it uh, quite a few times, and the first thing that comes to mind when I think of John, speaking of young men, as I go back to uh, just days of, of being a football coach and that pregame vibe that tends to happen in football. Now, I know there's not a lot of sports people in the room, but just bear with me for a moment when it comes to pregame. You see, in football and pregame, the guys go out, they warm up, and then they go in the locker room, and the reality is most of us don't know what happens in the locker room at that point, okay? I'm going to go ahead and tell you, it's really quiet quiet. quiet there's a lot of Gatorade and water being passed around some orange slices and then all of a sudden the head coach walks in and the players come up and take a knee it's like if you've ever seen that movie Rudy it's kind of got that vibe to it they all come take a knee around the coach and then all of a sudden the coach gives some impassioned speech in order to motivate the guys to get ready for battle that's going to happen on that Friday night I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I had the privilege of working with an incredible coach who gave the greatest motivational speeches before a game. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, his speech had nothing to do with what we were about to do on that football field, but as a coach, even I was ready to run through a brick wall. Now, at the same time, I'm going to go ahead and tell you too, it became really clear to me as a coach that whether we would win or lose was based on the pregame speech and I remember joking with our head coach about that. I'm like, hey, look, we're going to win or lose this game based on that last five minutes and what you say to the team. So this is a good team we're playing. Make it count because this has been a bad week of football practice. But I've got to tell you, I'll never forget the time that he came to me as we were getting done with warm-ups, And the coach came to me and said, pastor, I need you to do me a favor tonight. I need you to motivate these kids with the word of God in such a way that they are ready for war. I have never felt more pressure in my life to teach the word of God. I went through every Old Testament scenario of every battle imaginable. I started envisioning Joshua like it was a Hollywood movie and thinking about every war that he went through. And I thought in some way, we're gonna be able to tie Joshua into what it is these kids were about to go through. And we were gonna motivate them for the task at hand. Well, when we look Back at our passage here, John, in speaking to these young men, he is wanting to keep them motivated for the battle that is at hand for them. He is wanting to keep them motivated for the spiritual work and the spiritual warfare that they are now in the midst of. And so we can really break down John's words into three different parts. John says, because God's word abides in you, you are now strong. And then he closes by saying it two times for emphasis that because God's word abides in you, because you are now strong, you have overcome the evil one. You see, these warriors of Christ have now been reminded of the game plan provided by the word of God that will bring about the beating that is coming for the devil and his evil minions. You see, when we abide in christ when we hide his word in our hearts when his word is hidden within us it's in that moment that we are strong and when we are strong in christ jesus then we will overcome the temptations of this world and we will overcome the devil himself You see, John reminds us that we have all that we need in Christ Jesus. We have all that we need in his word. And so let's, like John would say, let us remain, let us abide in his word today. So we have to ask ourselves as believers in Christ, not only gathered corporate believers in Christ, but also in our personal lives, how are we doing at remaining or abiding in the Word of God? Do we realize today that we are in the midst of spiritual warfare and the one weapon that we need, the one weapon that God has given to us. The one weapon that makes us strong is hopefully the one weapon that you have brought with you today and you are carrying right now, and it's the Word of God. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to give a spoiler alert to our graduates, okay? I don't know if any of you peeked at your gift yet, but it's a Bible, okay? If I just ruin that moment for you, sorry, I'm not sorry, you have the word of God with you, carry it as a weapon, study it, use it, know it, use it for a rebuke, reproof, encouragement, edification, use the weapon that God has given to you. And there's a reason why we give Bibles as gifts. It's not because we're a church, okay? Pastor Corey and I did not sit down last week or the week before that and say, hey, we're pastors. We need to give the graduates a gift. What's a great gift to give them? Oh, I know, a Bible. Why? Because we're pastors. No. You were given Bibles because we believe in the Word of God. We believe in the inerrancy of the Word. We believe that as people of God, we should desire to know God. And the best way we can desire to know God is to know his word. It's why we believe in singing the word of God. It's the reason why we believe in praying the word of God. It's the reason why in worship, there is scripture reading that glorifies the word of God. And it's why we believe in sitting under the teaching of the word of God. Anything beyond that, I'm not sure is of God. You see, we should desire to know the word. So I want to go ahead and say to you today, if you have been here the past two weeks listening to 1 John chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, and you've been really discouraged by the words you've been hearing, maybe, maybe over the past week you've been discouraged by what's happening around the world. Maybe you're frustrated by the confusion that's coming from the CDC over whether or not you should be vaccinated, over whether or not you should wear a mask, or, or you're heartbroken and hurt over what's happening in the Middle East right now, or you're just confused about the political climate of our country and where it is we're going, maybe you're just discouraged and confused and hurt in all of that. Well, then my hope and my prayer for you today is that you were able to find comfort in the word of God, particularly in the word that John has given to us today. You see, in the word of God, which is Christ Jesus, we know that we can and we will overcome. Now, John moves from there into verses 15 through 17, and he moves from providing a word of encouragement to now John gives the believers a word of warning. You see, John's word of warning here is the world. In fact, he references the world six times in our passage. Now again, just a note, the world that John is referencing here is not the created planet, nor is it the people on said planet. Rather, John is addressing a worldview perspective that can best be characterized by the following phrases, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and pride of life. Now more on that in a moment. John in this text is is not going to tell us to reject any and all aspects of culture. In fact, I think John would argue that much much of culture, when you get beyond people's pride and you get beyond what it is that you're hearing in the news, actually reflects the glory and the goodness and the gifts of God the Father. However, John is going to encourage believers not to love or to idolize thoughts values or behaviors that are contrary to the word of God or contrary to the will of God. And so John is now going to highlight several promises from the world that the world cannot deliver on. He says in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, here's a simple truth that we all know this morning the human heart longs to be loved and it longs to love. In fact, we aren't that far removed from the Beatles writing a very popular song about that. All you need is love. Da, 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 Y'all were all thinking it, weren't you? Some of you were nodding along, you know. Coming back to our text, why does John tell us not to love the world? Well, for John to love the world is to not love the Father. You see, it's almost as if John is saying to us today, look, choose. Choose who you will love. Will it be the world or is it God? Choose today, but choose carefully. Choose wisely. You see, when we choose the world... Notice how we are always left longing for more. If you don't believe me, look at all the stuff that constantly keeps coming out. The new gadgets, the new gizmos, all the new things that keep coming. And we keep desiring for more and more and more stuff. And the reality is, do we even need it? In fact, John at this point asks us, why would we give our love to a lesser lover who could never satisfy us or give us what it is that we need? And then he gets to verse 16, and we come back to one of the most important verses in the Bible. John now teaches the faithful about the weapons that the world uses in order to seduce all men and all women. He tells us that these weapons are the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, what's really sad about each of these weapons that the world uses is that each of these weapons actually reside in us. Now, let me unpack this for just a moment. You see, when you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you read the story of Adam and Eve, and you see the doctrine of original sin. You see the doctrine of the first Adam, and there we have a synopsis of what's happening when sin is introduced to the world. We see that Adam and Eve saw the tree that was good for food. We now see the desire of the flesh. We see that they looked upon the tree, and they saw that the fruit was delightful to look at. And so now we see the desire of the eyes. And then finally, we see that they believed as they were told that this fruit would give them wisdom comparable to God. And now we see the pride of life. And as we know, as you continue to read in Genesis chapter 3, we know the rest of the story as Adam would fall. Now fast forward to the Gospels, particularly to the story of Jesus being tempted by Satan in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. We see that the devil told Jesus to turn stone to bread. In that moment, we see Satan tempting Jesus with the desire of the flesh. Next, he takes Jesus up to show him the kingdoms of the world that would be his. And so now Satan tempts Jesus with the desire of the eyes. It is then that Jesus is taken to the top of the temple and told to throw himself down and the angels would protect him. And it's at this moment that Satan tempts Jesus with the pride of life. And yet notice this, none of these things would lead Jesus to betray God. In fact, Jesus would use the word of God in order to refute Satan. You see, John, in using these particular words, tells us that the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes will ultimately lead us to sin. Sin at first is fun. It's enticing. It's attractive. But once we are in it, we are now hooked like a fish in the water with no return. John also tells us that there's a sin known as the pride of life. Now, John, in speaking of this particular sin, is speaking of those who glorify themselves more than they give God the glory. This is a person who boasts upon himself a person who is arrogant for this person uh, who is in the world john says for these people that pride and power and possessions and prestige and position is what life is all about and the sad reality is all of these things are counter to what jesus taught and what jesus lived So what's more important to us today? Is it our relationship with Jesus Christ? Or is it our stuff? Maybe stuff is the wrong word. Maybe stuff is not your thing. Trust me, I get that. As someone who just moved and just cleaned out a lot of stuff, I get it. Stuff is not our thing. I understand it. Maybe it's not stuff. Maybe the word we should use is our preferences. What's more important? Glorifying God or our personal preferences. We get to verse 17 and John now concludes his word on encouragement and word of warning. He basically asks and answers his own question. He says, why side with the world when it is, according to his words, the, wor- the world that is passing away along with its desires? Now, John was not done at this statement. He then tells the believers, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so John teaches that Jesus' work is lasting because his work is and was the will of the Father. So when it comes to us today, our work... As believers in Christ, our work as those who realize we have a Savior and a Lord and his name is Jesus, our work is to abide in Christ, to abide in his word, and therefore our hearts must not be attached to the things of this world, but rather to the will of the Father according to his word. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So as believers today, are we focused on doing the will of the Father? Do we realize that in the midst of our current climate, do we realize that this world is passing away and all that will remain is Christ and Christ alone? I want to close our message in the same way I opened it. I opened with a story from church history about Maximus of Turin. I want to close with another character from history. This is the story of Demas. Demas was a person who was not well known, but according to Colossians chapter 4, he was working hard for the gospel alongside of Luke. Paul documents Demas as a faithful servant and brother in Christ. However, at some point, something changed. At some point for Demas, something went wrong. So much so that by the time we get to 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul mentions Demas again, but not as a Christian servant, but as one who has now deserted Paul because of his love for this present world. Now, I didn't mention this when we were going through 2 Timothy, but every time I come back to this story of Demas, what has always struck me about his story is how Paul, Paul who is clearly writing his last letter, Paul who understands that execution is just around the corner. Paul who understood that he is days, maybe even hours or, or, or moments away from being executed. Paul who's fixing to face execution would still take the time to speak of the one who abandoned him for the love of the world. I gotta tell you, when I read this passage in 2 Timothy chapter four, I can almost hear the pain In Paul's words, as he writes about Demas, a man who was his friend, but yet a man who turned to the world. You see, this story for us as believers today should be a sobering reminder. As Christians, let us never allow the love of life to eclipse our love for God. A love for the world, for for stuff, for preferences will ultimately hurt us. It will hurt those around us. And the reality is this world is ultimately passing away. So as believers, let us hear the words of John when he tells us to love God supremely. For when we do, there will be no regrets. How do we know this? Because the word of God says so. For John, these were words that he told us to hold on to. For John, these were words that mattered. Let's pray together.